This is an ABC podcast. We launched this campaign because no one was clearly and authentically talking about issues like the corrupting role of money in politics, like the disturbing human rights violations being committed by ICE, by the fact that no one was giving voice to the idea and the notion that an entire generation is graduating with crippling loads of student loan debt, a ticking time bomb for our economy. No one was talking about these issues, and when no one talks about them, we have the duty to stand up for what is right. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, one of several young left-wing Democrats who were elected to Congress in the recent American midterm election. Across America, left-wing candidates ran for office. Not all of them got elected, but the mere fact that they ran marks a sea change in US politics. For decades, we've tended to focus on the right of politics in America. George W. Bush and the rise of the Tea Party. Bill and Hillary Clinton, who represented the corporate side of the Democratic Party. While this shifted slightly with the election of the first African-American president, Barack Obama, since the emergence of Donald Trump, we are again obsessed with right-wing politics. But is there something on the left of US politics we've been missing? How should we understand Bernie Sanders, a professed socialist who almost gained the Democratic nomination in 2016, or the recent election of young people who happily call themselves socialists? Are we about to see a resurgence of left-wing or socialist ideas in American politics? And if so, what is that likely to mean? Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on RN. Over the next two programs, we're going to trace the rise and fall of radical left politics in the United States and try and work out just how this new crop of left-wing politicians fits within this history. America is not known as a socialist nation, quite the reverse. Most of us would see it as the bastion of the free market and right-wing politics. But this has not always been the case. The idea of socialism has been called un-American, and yet, paradoxically, in the 19th century, America was the greatest socialist experimentation center in the world. Christopher Phelps, one of the authors of Radicals in America, a comprehensive history of the American left since the Second World War. It was a place where the followers of Robert Owen from England, the followers of Charles Fourier from France, put into practice these ideas of how to have an intentional community that would socialize production and property and share in the abundance of wealth produced by the community. And a lot of them were immigrants, people like Francis Wright, who was a follower of Owen and a utopian socialist and also a feminist and also anti-slavery. And there are a lot of different strands going on in the radicalism of that period, including abolitionism, which has its own dynamics and comes out of Protestant Christianity and the idea that we're all equal in the eyes of God, which then got extended to slavery as slavery being a sin. And as a lot of women who were often active in the church began to be active in the abolitionist movement, they confronted 
the idea that they couldn't publicly speak, that they couldn't be politically active, and the modern feminist movement is born. I mean, the first women's rights convention in 1848 was in the United States. So there's a whole efflorescence of radicalisms that are interrelated in the early 19th century. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free I wish I could break all the chains holding me I wish I could say the Civil War was not over the question of slavery's existence initially. It was over the question of whether slavery would expand westward. Lincoln and the Republican Party were on record against slavery's expansion. And the South took that to be a indication that eventually there would be a move against slavery itself and they seceded from the Union. And so the Civil War was fought by the North initially just to preserve the Union. But in the course of the war, it became an anti-slavery war because of the activity of slaves themselves. The fact that abolitionism had seeded a lot of thinking among what were called the radical Republicans was very important. And it's those radical Republicans in Congress who are liberated to take leadership once the South is withdrawn and the Southerners are no longer in Congress, who pass the 13th Amendment that abolishes slavery and the 14th and 15th Amendments that extend civil rights regardless of race and voting rights regardless of race. And in that period, you really do see radical ideas being extended much more by, say, the Republican Party than perhaps the Democratic Party. Yes, the Republican Party's militant civil rights wing was the leading force for human rights in that period. In fact, they're the ones that put through the 14th Amendment, which has what's now being derided as birthright citizenship, the idea that anyone born in the United States is a citizen of the United States, because if you're going to grant equal rights to all citizens, you have to define citizen, and that had not been done in the Constitution before, and so those Reconstruction Amendments are extremely radical. They completely transform the nature of the Constitution. They completely transform America because a country that was founded with slavery protected by the Constitution now has slavery forbidden by the Constitution. A country that was founded in a way that didn't really define citizenship and often restricted it de facto to propertied white men ends up extending it to all regardless of color. The radical nature of the Republican Party was, however, based on theological principles. As Robin Archer, author of Why There Is No Labour Party in the United States, explains. One has to remember that the Republican Party was born from that conflict. So in that conflict, the Republican Party emerges as the party of evangelical, if you like, neo-Puritan activists, and their main issue is the terrible sin of slavery. And it's easy to forget now that what was driving activists, anti-slavery activists, in many cases, powerfully, were these theological concerns. They thought that the second coming can't happen if this terrible sin is still in place. So the Republican Party is profoundly affected by the idea that you should get a hold of state power to make society more godly. And good on them, they got rid of slavery. But there were other sins 
There were saloons. There was Sabbath desecration. There was different ways of doing schooling. And once they dealt with slavery, they turned to those issues. The Democratic Party turned around and said, look, we're the party of personal liberty. So in the North, they said, look, it doesn't matter to us whether you're an Irish Catholic or a, or a Protestant or a Methodist or a, a Jewish person. It doesn't matter. That's for you to decide. The state shouldn't be policing your moral opinions. If you want to drink beer, that's fine. If you don't, that's fine. It's your choice. And you can see that issue runs through American politics to this day. I mean, why is abortion such a powerful issue dividing the parties? It's driven by the same sorts of concerns. So that's the division that's in place from the middle of the 19th century. By the end of the 19th century, the United States was becoming the most industrialised nation on earth. And the Republican Party shifted from being the party of civil rights to the party of big business. The Gilded Age, as it's called, the period of industrial wealth and headlong industrialization as the United States becomes the leading manufacturing power in the United in the world, is a time of labor militancy. In fact, there are more larger strikes and more combative strikes, more violent strikes in the United States than anywhere else at the time. And there's a lot of ideas in the air, various sorts of reform proposals some of which are socialist and some of which are not. And the late 19th century is the occasion for a new radicalism. The Republican Party had become more interested in business and money in the industrial era than in prosecuting consistently the civil rights agenda that had characterized it right at the end of the Civil War. They made a peace with the South, and part of that peace meant withdrawing federal troops and no longer enforcing on a national level the civil rights protections. And that business character of the Republican Party leaves an opening for a radical third party. In the 1880s and 1890s, a farmer's radicalism emerges called populism with the People's Party with the capital P. And it's a third-party movement that contends with the Republicans in the West and with the Democrats in the South and effectively becomes the second party in those regions. They take over the virtually the entire state government of Kansas and some other states, and they win a lot of uh, electors in the uh, 1892 presidential election. But one of the reasons why the 1890s is the high point of lynching and one of the reasons why African-Americans get disenfranchised at the end of the 19th century and one of the reasons why segregation gets more rigidly instituted throughout the country, that's when you get the Plessy versus Ferguson decision, is a conscious attempt to defeat the populists, to prevent this interracial alliance of poor black and white farmers and to bring white farmers back into the fold by instilling them with racism. So there is a uniquely American small property kind of radicalism that's stewing at the end of the 19th century that gets defeated by flagrant racism. We're brave and gallant minor boys who work in underground. As the United States industrialised, there emerged a growing and militant workforce, unionising and demanding better pay, conditions and hours of work. And some of them were also beginning to debate the idea of a workers' or labour party. Organised labour was had typically been about skilled workers who could monopolise a bit of the labour market and try and get something for themselves. 
but industrialization produced large numbers of unskilled and semi-skilled workers who were much larger in number but had much less labour market leverage. They are the ones who had an interest in getting into politics. They're the ones that had the numbers through the votes to do so. And they were also the ones that were involved in the most rancorous industrial disputes. One of the distinctive things about the United States, and probably one of the keys to the story, is the extent to which the United States state is prepared to repress those particular groups of organised workers, not just to squash them, but to wipe out their organisations so they didn't have the organisational ballast to pursue what was otherwise in their interests. So what were some of the key strikes you might have seen in the United States at the end of the um, 19th century? Yeah, so you've got to remember in the the 1890s, people had never experienced a a depression like they did at that time. In their lived memory, that was the sort of worst they'd had. In some cities like Chicago, you've got 25% unemployment, so it's really a major thing. Strikes going on in the railways, in the iron and steel industry, in the coal mines, in all these areas, in all cases... Governments come in on the side of employers with police and soldiers, and in all cases, the strikes are defeated, and in most cases, the unions are destroyed. Now, that's a process that you see in this depression in other countries, but it's unusual for them to so thoroughly destroy the organisations. So whereas in Australia, for example, you have the maritime strikes at that time, those are the guys that in Australia set about establishing the Labor Party. They're defeated, but they're not destroyed. So... In America, there were moments, and as you said, there were some unions that actually wanted to move in a political direction. Who were they and what, what was their rationale and, and why were they not able to succeed? Hmm. So I guess there's two answers to that. I mean, one answer are unions that just for pragmatic reasons are being so heavily squashed that they want to use the ballot, which after all they've got, unlike many European workers at this time, They want to use the ballot to get the state off their back. So it's just a pragmatic response. That's the case with coal miners, railway workers and so on. There's another group of people who are ideologically motivated who think that socialist ideas call for the establishment of such a party and they are also in the mix. And it has to be said that they're operating in an environment where there's an insurgent farmers movement going on which forms something called a people's party And the general idea is that these labour activists should get together with these farmer activists to form a labour-farmer alliance and thereby establish a labour party. You're listening to Rear Vision on RN. I'm Annabelle Quince. And this is the first of a two-part series tracing the history of the radical left in American politics. At the end of the 19th century, organised labour in all industrialised nations established labour parties and entered the political arena, but not in the United States. In the United States and in Australia, the UK socialist tradition is powerfully present. But one thing that distinguishes those two cases is this sort of German-based Marxian body of ideas, which is not very powerful in the UK and certainly not in Australia. And those guys happen to be in important positions, both in the trade unions and in the people who want to advocate for a party. And they've been at loggerheads with each other, partly because they're rerunning a dispute between Ferdinand Lasalle's and Karl Marx that got settled in Germany a couple of decades earlier, and partly because they're in a dispute about Marx himself. 
And so there's a very important leader, the most important leader of the American Federation of Labor is Samuel Gompers. He was actually born in Britain. And he says, when they're arguing about this, he says, look, you know, I'll show you from the works of Marx that it is wrong to form a political party. And these other guys on the other side are waving around their thing and um, saying, you know, no, no, Marx says that... So at this time, you know, there's this weird dispute going on at the top levels about Marxism. We have a, a stenographer wrote down this, what everyone said in this particular conference where they're deciding about whether to have a party. And there's a major leader of a coal miners union who just sort of throws his hands up at one time and says, look, I just don't understand what all this is about. You know, it just seems to me that there's one set of socialists arguing with another set of socialists, but my members, you know, our union's being destroyed and we can vote and stop it. Why, why don't we, you know? And this sort of pragmatic thing is drowned out in this particular milieu by this socialist sectarianism. But I wouldn't want to overemphasise that, but it is, it is a factor. I think when you research things, you often sort of know what you're going to find. When I was researching this, I did not expect to find these disputes at this level being framed in this language. So if it wasn't just ideological, why do you think organised labour in America failed to establish a Labour Party? I think the answer rests on two main things involved this repression that I've been talking about. It, it wipes out those unions that have the strongest interest in moving down that path so they don't have a voice in the central councils of labour anymore. But the second reason has to do with the fear of union leaders of the political salience of religion. So union leaders are trying to organise workers. Workers are citizens like other citizens. The United States is a country that's been democratic for white men anyway for some generations and people have established loyalties on the one hand to the Democratic Party, on the other to the Republican Party. And those loyalties are tied up in a complicated way with ethno-religious identities. The union leaders fear that if they put their toe into that electoral arena, they'll be perceived as taking sides in those sectarian ethno-religious disputes and that that will damage their own labour organisations, their own unions. Michael Kazin, Professor of History at Georgetown University, argues that the other reason a Labour Party wasn't established was the flexibility of the two major parties. The reason why a Labour Party never really emerged in this country is because the two major parties were flexible enough at different times to co-opt labour unions, to co-opt uh, labour activists. The, the two major parties were led by people who were clever enough to, to shift their rhetoric and, and take in some activists from the labor movement to forestall a labor party. Also, even though there's been a lot of class conflict in the United States, class consciousness, which is a different thing, which is necessary really to start a labor party or for that matter, a major socialist party, was always a problematic thing uh, in this country. A lot of workers had that very sense of themselves as being in a separate class as opposed to a class of, of the rich. But at the same time, they had other identities too, as immigrants from Ireland, from Germany, from Poland, from China, from all, all other countries in the world that make up the American population. And also they had a very strong regional identity. After all, we had a civil war, not about class conflict, but about, about slavery, about inferiority of one race as opposed to another. So this means that in order to form a Labour Party, have a Labour Party really be a factor in American elections, you have to have people vote on the basis of their class feeling, their class consciousness. And most Americans, even those in labor unions, 
often had other identities that were just as important to them or more important to them. And also when you have a two-party system, you know, you, there's also a lesser evil, you know. You might say, well, you wish if you're a, a worker or a labor activist, well, you wish that the Republican Party was more friendly to labor, but the Democratic Party seems to be more friendly this year. So if you don't want the Republicans to win, then you have to support Democrats, even though you'd really rather have a labor party. But you realize that a labor party is not going to win elections at the beginning, and therefore it doesn't really begin. So what do you think has been some of the social and political outcomes of not having a Labor Party? Well, I mean, you could list a series of them. I mean, the most basic one is that the balance of power in political economic disputes has more heavily favoured business interests than in most advanced capitalist societies. It expresses itself in the far bigger dispersion of income and wealth between the rich and the poor. You can see it in the weakness of trade union organisation, and you can see it particularly clearly in the poorly developed welfare state. The political strength of organised labour was central to the development of welfare states in Western Europe and in other advanced industrial countries. The United States, notoriously, though one of the wealthiest societies, has one of the least developed welfare states. And the reasons that blocked it from being developed are not just reasons to do with organised labour, it's also to do with the highly racialized nature of the United States. But the weakness of organised labour looms large in that explaining that outcome. When the union's inspirations through the workers' blood shall run, there can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one? For the union makes us strong. There is a question that's existed for a long time. Why is there no socialism in the United States? The first person to ask that was Werner Sombart, a German sociologist. But the paradox is that when he asked that in 1906, there actually was socialism in the United States. That's the moment when the Socialist Party of America was taking off, when there was a shift of votes going that way. In 1912, a thousand socialists were elected to office, local on up to congressmen, and Eugene V. Debs, who was the railroad union leader who led that party as its figurehead, received more than a million votes and more than 6% of the vote for president. So the United States has a electoral system that tends to be punishing on third parties. And when a third party begins to gain steam, its voters often face a choice as the major parties adapt their program to the demands of the third party. Do I vote for the third party loyally that I know will give me everything I want if it were to get elected? Or do I accept the reality that almost surely they won't get elected, that one of the major parties will? And should I therefore cast my vote strategically for the one that's closest and that has indeed made concessions to our politics? And that's part of what happens to socialism. Socialism also is quite violently suppressed in the United States in the World War I period in 1919. There's a Red Scare and there's an Espionage and Sedition Act during World War I. The Socialist Party of America opposed the First World War. They thought it was an imperialist war of 
in which workers were slaughtering each other for the benefit of the rich and all in pursuit of empire as Europe fought to carve up Asia and Africa. And for that, many of them went to prison. Well, yes, you did, as in every industrial country, you did have a socialist party called the Socialist Party of America, which was formed in 1901. And the Communist Party was actually formed 18 years later out of a split in the Socialist Party. And that was happening around the world um, after the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. But unlike in many European countries, some Latin American countries, these parties never were able to break through to be major electoral forces. I would argue that they had a lot of cultural influence. A lot of intellectuals were attracted to socialist ideas, later on to communist ideas. Uh, they had an important impact as, as activists in social movements and cultural movements. But again, the, the two-party domination of American politics made it very difficult for socialists and later on communists to break through. The Socialist Party did elect uh, roughly 1,000 officials of various kinds around the country, local officials mostly, but most of them only had low-level offices, assemblymen, mayors of little towns, that kind of thing. And, and often they didn't win re-election. So they didn't really leave that much of a imprint. They didn't really have much power in American politics. And the communists, for that matter, elected almost nobody because the anti-communist feeling was much stronger in the 1930s, 1940s, uh, when the communist party was strong than the anti-socialist party feeling had been earlier. The big bull market was dead. The golden glow of prosperity had turned to dross. The arteries of commerce were clogged with 5,000 bank failures. 45,000 miles of railroads fell into bankruptcy. Big business that didn't fail retrenched and contracted. 12 million unemployed. More than half a million farms lost as farm prices fell 75%. 1930 brought the droughts to the eroded plains. 1931 brought the bread lines and the soup kitchens and the apple cellars and more unemployment. 15 million now. This indeed was total depression. Yes, in the 30s especially, with the Great Depression, with unemployment of about a quarter of the population, tremendous hardship and poverty, a dust bowl to boot, the left gains momentum. The industrial labor movement has its great successes. That's when American manufacturing is finally successfully unionized is during the Great Depression. Also, fascism is in the air in Italy and Germany and elsewhere in Central Europe. And worry over that leads to inclination toward the left. Furthermore, a desire to prevent another world war after the memory of the First World War. So, Activity against fascism and war, activity for labor, activity for racial solidarity, and to defeat the conditions of the depression, to mobilize against unemployment and so forth, lead to a lot of momentum on the left, mostly under the leadership of the Communist Party, but also a lot of socialists, both organized and informal. The 30s are the classic labor left in thought and action in the United States. And I mean, in a way, is it the success of both those ideas, the communist and the socialist ideas, that in a sense almost pushes the Democrats into the New Deal? Yes, things like the Wagner Act in 1935, which for the first time recognized labor's right to strike and right to form unions, the Social Security Act, 
the tax on wealth, all of these measures that Roosevelt passed in 35 and 36, which were about as far left as American liberalism had ever gone, were ideas out of the playbook of the older socialist left and had long been advocated by labor activists and leftists. And it's the crisis of the Depression that compels that along with the activity in the streets and the strikes and so forth. Policies and ideas advocated by the American socialists and communists were clear to see in Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. And with fascists gaining ground across Europe in the 1930s, the radical left in America found itself on the right side of history. But as we'll hear in part two, which is now available on the website, their influence was not to last. In this program, you heard from Christopher Phelps, co-author of Radicals in America, Robin Archer, the author of Why There Is No Labour Party in the United States, and Michael Kazin, Professor of History at Georgetown University. The sound engineer is Judy Rapley. I'm Annabel Quince, and this is Rear Vision on RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.